You are listening to the Apex Hour, hosted by Ryan Paul on KSUU Thunder 91.1. This show allows more personal time with our guests, allowing them to give us their stories and opinions. We will also give you new music to listen to, hoping you enjoy some new sounds and genres. Welcome to this episode of the Apex Hour. Welcome to the Apex Radio Hour. I'm producer Evan Miller. I'm joined with Apex Director and Professor of History, Ryan Paul, and our special guest, Laurel Braitman, as well as uh, Danielle Dabraski. Ryan, I'm turning it over to you. Thank you, Evan. We are excited to have uh, two very special guests here today. First of all, we have uh, Dr. Laurel Braitman, who was the 2023 Grace A. Tanner Lecturer in Human Values. And we also have my friend and colleague, Dr. Daniel Dabraski, who is a professor of English here and the director of the Grace A. Tanner Center. So welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks so much for having us. So, Laurel, I want to start with uh, what I always like to start with is kind of a how we get to now question. So can you briefly just tell us a little bit about who you are and how you got to be where you are? Sure. It's a good prompt. I am a professor of writing at the Stanford Medical School, and I'm primarily a nonfiction writer. Um, I also run my family's ranch with my brother and my husband and my sister-in-law. We grow citrus commercially in Southern California. So a professor of writing at a medical school, is is that unusual? Or is that something that, was, that you created? Or is that something that is a, a standard thing? There are a few medical schools in the U.S. There's there's many medical schools with medical humanities programs, and I know of at least one other school that has a writer in residence. Um, but a writing and storytelling program is not something I've heard of before, and that's a hundred percent due to my mentor, who is an incredible um, woman and physician and poet, actually named Audrey Schaefer, um, who started the medical humanities program over fifteen years ago at Stanford and made me a job also gave me a key to her house because housing is really expensive in Palo Alto. And I feel like that just tells you everything about what kind of character this person has. So did you, did you see this? I mean, when you were a kid, did you think, you know what I'd like to do is I'd like to be a, a, a professor of writing at Stanford Medical School. No, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a professional donkey trainer and a mule packer um, and probably like a famous actress or something uh, who also fished. I'd say that really sums up my goals. Um, And I loved writing and I loved books, but that seemed preposterous, like saying I wanted to be an astronaut, but even being an astronaut seemed more realistic. I didn't know anyone who'd written books um, and my parents didn't. And it just seemed like a weird job to say you want. Were your, did you come from a family that, that was a, a book reading family? Yes. Uh, my parents loved books and I was wildly lucky or rather unlucky and lucky. I had a, a fourth grade teacher who really didn't like me and I read a lot in class and I would read, go through our class reading quickly and then I would just sort of sit there bored and she thought I was messing with her and not doing the work and she called my mom into school and said, you know, I was a problem in the class and I was argumentative and I was lying about how much reading I was doing. And um, my mom, (laughs) I remember her driving away from school and being like, Laurel, there's such thing as these people there. We call them anti-intellectuals. And uh, I'm going to take you to the bookstore and your reward is you can buy whatever books you want. Um, And she just knew that this this woman wasn't supportive of my interests and that I should watch out for those people. And I, I remember the car ride. Um, so I, I was definitely rewarded with books, even though my parents, I don't think, 
thought of writing as like a realistic job. So did you did you buy Tales of a Fourth Grade Nothing? <laughs> is, that, is that the book you bought up there? Oh, you know, I read everything I could get my hands on. At that point, I was right deep into like a babysitter's club hole, um, which I crawled out of, thankfully. <laughs> so what uh, what did your parents do? I mean, obviously, was your dad, that was what he did as a vocation or was it a... I mean, as a citrus farmer? Um, yeah, he was a half-time farmer. My mom was a full-time farmer. And my dad was a cardiac surgeon at our local small hospital in Ventura County. Um, so he he worked in the hospital. She worked on the ranch. And then any spare minute he had, he would be back on the ranch, too. So was it a like a family farm they inherited? Or they just said, we want to be citrus farmers? They just wanted to do it. My mom grew up in Los Angeles. And my father grew up in downtown Baltimore, kind of the inner city of Baltimore. And he had come out west uh, to do his residency at UCLA. And they fell in love. And they first lived on a street called Avocado Lane in a little town called Oxnard. And they would drive down this road. And they would look at these, they're really beautiful trees, avocado trees. They're dark green and really fluffy and tall. And they would look at these and wonder about it. And they were really curious about agriculture. And our, what is now our family place was up for auction. And uh, they made a bid on it. And then we're like, oh my God, I guess we're going to. I guess we're going to become farmers. And so they, they taught themselves. They also, you know, our neighbors, thankfully, were very patient in the 70s and early 80s as they learned what they were doing. So it's kind of the, the biggest little farm before the biggest little farm. Yes. Although if you ask anyone about the biggest little farm in our area, they will tell you it's it's kind of a polarizing topic. If anyone has seen that documentary, it just presents small farming as like such an aesthetic, beautiful experience. And what we know watching that is like, oh, my God, like they're not the money is not coming from the farming. Like it just their their worm like fertilizer situation looks like a three million dollar thing, you know, or like there's no way they're selling their eggs at the farmer's market for eight dollars a dozen and then building that kind of farm. So it's beautiful. I'd say it's like um, small farming PR as opposed to though small farming what it looks like day in and day out. So, so you you grow up on on the farm, right? And you have these experiences. And what what sets then your course to say I want to do what I do? You know, I grew up as this like chubby, isolated, book loving donkey loving kid in a town where like it wasn't that cool to be into donkeys and reading and you know I spent a lot of time outside alone by myself and one thing I would do to keep myself interested was make up stories um I loved it and books always felt like a home to me I I didn't know I was queer yet too and I think there was that like even before I could put words to any of that it was like a um confirmation that the world was bigger than I thought it was and that I could meet new and different kinds of people. And um, it was just a big promise. So I'm going to segue here. I, I, I do have a question because I've done this a while and that's the most anyone has ever mentioned donkeys <laughs> that, that I've heard. So what is it about donkeys that uh, that resonate with you? I don't know. I mean, I think similarly, they were, uh, and some were jerks, to tell you the truth. They weren't all uniformly kind because a bunch of them were rescues. My, There was a program um, in the 70s in California called the California State Adopt-A-Donkey Program, a little bit like the wild must, some of the wild musting programs out here. And if there, there was too many, um, and they were really eating too much of native flora. And so there was a big game roundup where a couple times a year you could go out and 
select your donkeys. Otherwise, they were going to get killed or um, sold elsewhere. And so my parents got a few that way. But then word kind of got out that if you had a donkey that needed help, my family would help take them in. And, you know, I would just go when things were hard at home, which they were a lot of the time. Um, Or I felt just lonely because that was just the experience of childhood for me sometimes. Um, I would go hang out with the donkeys and, you know, they didn't judge me and they didn't think I was nerdy and um, I could just be me. Um, So I think they were some of my first non-judgmental friends. So, and and I should have said, Danielle, please, if you have a comment or question or please, I I don't want to leave you out of the conversation. Oh, no. Thank you. I just think it's fascinating that um, I feel like writers often have that similar, it's a it's a loneliness as a child and then you draw on your imagination you create these stories and so I'm loving listening to Laurel talk about that these childhood um, that those that emotion and that sense of loneliness is really a well to draw on for the stories that and and what you will write later and it's affirming for anybody listening as a writer remembering oh this is what it was like to have those, those moments so what, what is the I mean Daniel brings up a great point about processing in this way and, and some people process it in they're writing in, in a fictional sense and, and and you have chosen a non-fiction route is there a reason for that um I think fiction has always intimidated me just like I am in awe of Danielle for writing poetry because poetry also intimidates me I think non-fiction is just kind of an elastic form and somehow having to say what actually happened is less stressful than being able to make anything up like to me fiction is a rubik's cube with no solve whereas non-fiction you know if i don't want to lie which i don't i'm going to just say what happened <laughs> and I, then the challenge is how to make it interesting and how to turn it into a story whereas fiction is um i'm drawn to it i would love to learn how to do it but it's so much more intimidating um because it's it, it could begin anywhere and 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 end end anywhere. Um, and poetry scares me because it's the opposite of that. You have to have such economy of form, and each word must carry the weight of what could be ten thousand words um, in a memoir. So, h- how do you do it, Danielle? <laughs> I, I think that's. I think it is um, has to do with, with so much of it is listening. It's listening with an, an ear that over time is developed to just hear how these words are compatible with each other in various ways. But I find the sentences, the one that I mentioned earlier in that Q&A, that particular sentence has that has all that power. And and so in prose, I feel like it's the, like all that weight rests on the sentence and how you arrange those words and the way in which you might juxtapose um, different ideas, but in one in one really well wrought sentence. So for me, it's a lot of it is, is sound. Um, and then I'm, and I'm just going to go back to what you were talking about. As a child, I think animals are our best friends as writers, too, because I feel like if you they, they kind of give something to, to the writer's soul and imagination in various ways that show up later, I think, in our work. You know, I think that uh, in, in I, I don't know how Laurel, you, you write, but generally when I write, I I'm a read aloud guy. Like I will I will read aloud everything that I write every page because to me I need to see I need to hear how it sounds and I often catch more mistakes that way and and I've often found that that well-written nonfiction is as compelling if not more than well-written fiction has that been your experience yeah I mean I just love a well-written anything whether it's a song or a note someone gives me on the back of a napkin um 
but I, yeah, I do read everything out loud. I mean, before it was a written language, English was a spoken language. And still, when we're reading, we hear it. It's still, it's still an audio experience. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I focus, I can hear myself reading in my head as I read, even though I'm not saying anything. Um, so I do... I, there's always a point in a manuscript or in an essay or something where I realize it's the read aloud moment. I don't do it for the first few drafts just because it takes so long. Um, but when I know I'm close, that's when I start reading aloud. And, you know, it just starts to be very time consuming when you get to a book length thing. Um, but it's really important. And I kn- and that's how also, too, I know if my voice is right. Um, if it doesn't sound like something I'd say, if the language feels too formal um, or overwrought, if it makes me cringe a little while reading like I know I've gotten off track and that's when I stop and I'm like huh who are you trying to be here you know well I think it's interesting because you mentioned this earlier today is that that when you're writing you're you're putting your voice into somebody else's mind is that is that a fair articulation of what you said and and I think if if that really is the case then what you write needs to be deliberate and well curated because you're not just throwing something out there. If you're really putting your voice into somebody else's head, like it's like the body, I think I maybe use the analogy of the body snatchers, right? That this idea, we, can you reflect upon that? Yeah, yeah. It, the, what's at stake is that someone's going to you, kick you out. So you really want to be a good guest, right? Like you want to go inhabit someone's mind um, as, as somebody who brings value, as someone who's kind of charming. I think that what we respond to on the page and we call good writing is often just charm too. Like, like you, you want to be seduced in a, in a non-sexual way, although I guess it depends on what you're writing, um, by the writer. And it's a voice you want to hang out with. You know, like I want people to read my work and, and be sad when I leave the room. Right? Like we all know that feeling when you like get to the end of a poem or a story or a book or a film and you're like, oh, shoot, like I, I guess I have to say goodbye to this place and these people. And I think that means that the, the creator of that piece has done a very, very good job. Yeah, knowing that, that it will never be the same again. Right. I mean, you can revisit the show or you can reread the book, but you will never recapture that first moment of turning those pages and reading it for the first time. And I think that's why when you mentioned earlier in your S in your lecture that that read that stories create empathy, because, as you mentioned, someone else's voice as a reader, we we inhabit their voice and and the quality of that voice is so important, as you were saying. And I appreciate that empathy aspect as well. So speaking of writing and and in people's minds, I want to talk. We'll talk about after this first break about your first book, Animal Madness, Inside Their Minds. And and those of you who listen to the show or the podcast before know that we, we generally ask our guests to choose four songs that, that mean something to them uh, to play during our breaks. Uh, but, but I didn't do that this time. I, I made choices based upon some research and thought. And so forgive me if I've chosen poorly. But the first song we want to play as we go into first break is a song called Milo Minute by Grassy Widow. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Yes. Uh, Grass Widow is an amazing kind of surf rock band, um, garage band. Uh, They're no longer together, but they were together in a great band, the San Francisco Bay Area. And they played this song for a group of gorillas at the Franklin Park Zoo as part of a project I did called Music for Animals. All right. So this is Milo Minute by Grass Widow.
That was Gra- uh, Milo Minute by uh, Grass Widow. Um, and you're listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you. We're here with uh, Dr. Danielle Dabrowski and Dr. Laurel Braitman. Danielle, you had a comment you wanted to make. Yeah, I was just struck by when I was um, learning more about the workshops that you do that uh, we, you know, you're working with people. Or we all have self-doubt and anxiety in general. Um, and then writers are always carrying self-doubt and anxiety. And you're bringing actually two, what I was sort of imagining, two rivers converging of our emotional self-doubt and anxiety and the writer's emotional self-doubt and anxiety. Um, and, and the resulting body of water that you kind of bring them through is a new story that the student might not have written about without your workshop. And the story might be about overcoming a challenge or it might be about the expression of that anxiety, but without resolution. The important thing is that they went through that process of writing that story, but bringing with them those emotions and going through some kind of like, you know, writing got them to that, that story. And I wondered if you wanted to just talk about either the transformation you see that happens in a student just as a result of having told their story or what you think about that idea of bringing these, you know, this like really intense river of, <laughs> of emotions, but you are seeing them come out with something that is really resilient and strong. Well, aren't you? You should be a poet. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> what do you know? <laughs> What a gorgeous, gorgeous metaphor. And of course, because of where we are, all I see is red rock canyons. Um, yes. Uh, yes. And thank you. I don't know that I anyone has ever described what I am trying to do uh, with such grace. So thank you. Um, that is what my hope is, is that they they survive the river. Um, my hope is that they they enjoy it even. Um, it's a lot to ask for. I, but I think we are all the hero in our own hero's journey. And sometimes we just need to be reminded and we need to be given the opportunity to put our narrative together in a cohesive place and to be able to speak it aloud. Um, I think we become who we are and who we're meant to be by being given the opportunity to tell the story of how we came to be. Um, And weirdly, like, We live in a world where, like, corporations, like, we all know, like, you know, that Apple was started in a garage, or we can tell you what the main jingle is of most of the big corporations and their taglines, but very few of us can do the same for ourselves. Um, And so that, to me, is a core part of our work, which is just, like, we are all in the river, whether or not um, we notice or are paying attention to it. And what if we give ourselves a chance to tell the story of how we came to be and where we want to get to and who we are and know that it changes all the time. Um, So when I see students do that, uh, it's profound. I think they become a lot less isolated in the process. It deepens their friendships. Um, At Stanford, where I'm doing it, it has really changed the culture of the student body in a lot of ways. Um, And that's not me. That's the students doing it uh, through live storytelling series and other things. It's become cool in many ways to share your own story um, and in a career where they're not often rewarded for that or it could be a liability. And so I think it's a it's a way to make cultural change, too, but in a very personal and individual way. Um, so, you know, what I hope for them is that they get what I've gotten from telling my stories, which is, you know, deeper friendships with with people they'll never meet again uh, and people that are part of their lives. Um, and then also confidence in just talking about uh 
complex subjects. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's powerful. Thank you so much. Well, I also think that it's this idea of, I mean, when you, I would imagine when you're a physician, like really, really do you go to the doctor because you're happy, right? That that you're always hearing the, 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 the story of someone's, I mean, not that there aren't triumphal cases and everything else, but, but I would imagine there's always going through the, the darkness, if you will, before you see anything else and, and, and finding the light no matter how the things result. It reminds me of a, I'm a comic book nerd, and there's a comic book by Grant Morrison called All-Star Superman, where Superman finds out that he's got like a day left to live. And so what, what do you do, you know, when you're Superman? And there's a very iconic scene where there's a, a, a teenager sitting on the, the roof of a building, right, ready to, to end her life. And then the next scene is you see Superman standing behind her, and he just says to her, you're stronger than you think you are, and then leaves, right? And it's this idea of, of here's this, you know, Superman saying this to somebody who has no, you know, not super in many ways, but but because of their humanity, that every human being has value, and part of that value is in their story, right? So I, I, I let's let's shift then because I, I do want to talk about bravery, and I do want to get back to animals too, but but you know, the, following the Superman analogy, right? The big question always is: Is Superman brave, right? Because if you if you know you're not going to get hurt, are you? Are you brave, right? So I guess in that scenario, in that, that in that same idea, what what is your definition of of bravery? Well, it changes a lot. Um, it used to be one thing, and now it's something else. But I'll tell you what: like I don't think that you can be brave if you're not scared. Um, I don't think that you can be courageous without fear. I really believe that. And and now when I start to get fearful, I just I just say it again and again and again to myself as a kind of mantra. Like, okay, okay, this means you're on the right track. This doesn't mean you should back away. Um, so that's an active lesson for me in my life, um, 100%. And I'd say, you know, Bravery to me, if I had to define it, I would say it's hope in a superhero cape, hundred percent. Yeah, and I think that's interesting because you know we we were talking about resilience, right? And and I had mentioned that I had heard an interview with George Takai, who had grown up in an internment camp, and talks about his father. We think of resilience as just you know you just keep going, right, one foot after another. But to me, that's like boxer from Animal Farm, right? You just keep working and working and working. And he says no, resilience is is with moving forward with hope. And which is why I love history, right? Because in my mind, is the, the 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 most important lesson we can learn from history is there's always hope, right? So my question then is, is that for you, what does hope look like? Joy, I guess. Maybe those things are indistinguishable for me. Um, but I'd also say that's my resilience definition is um, keeping going, but also figuring out how to enjoy it and holding two conflicting feelings at once is a lot of you know what my new book is about um how we do that and what that means when we're finally able to do that and i would say um resilience is that right it's it's feeling joy and sorrow at the exact same time letting yourself have both um to me that's what resilience feels like and and would you say appreciating them both yeah it's just it's hard to appreciate sorrow (laughs) you know um i think I don't even know. To me, the experience of joy, too, is so overwhelming. I'm not sure that I can, like, think about it while it's happening, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. To me, joy and sorrow in the mix is sort of like more like a taste sensation, you know, like a bittersweet flavor that I can't get enough of. So, I mean, it's interesting that you have, you know, you've got two books, your newest one and the one you wrote um, earlier, that, that are 
I mean, dissimilar in some ways. I mean, what happened? So what, can you briefly talk about your first book and then maybe talk about what happens in between that says, I need to tell this next story? Sure. So my first book is called Animal Madness, and uh, it's a popular science book and a history of medicine book. And there's a little bit of me in it and my journey to help a dog that I loved who was very distraught and what I learned along the way that might help us make sense of our own minds and emotional experiences as humans by better understanding the emotional experiences of non-human animals and that which we have in common and that which we might not. And it's a very kind of straightforward science reported book. Um, I wanted to write a story, but I'm not sure I totally knew how to write a story yet. And it was based on my doctoral dissertation. Um, So I was kind of limited, I think, too, in how I thought about it because it was born of a scholarly work. Um, This new book, I really wanted to write a page turner because I didn't know how to do it. Um, And I wish I was someone like, I'm so jealous of, say, like Nicholas Sparks, who I think is a master of the craft. Um, But I apparently need to reinvent the wheel for myself every time. I wanted to write a page turner and I wanted to write a story. And so that's how the second book came to be. Once you read it and once you know me and if you've read the first book, you will realize that they're not actually that dissimilar. Um, The second book is kind of a story about how I became the kind of person that was interested in hanging out with mentally disturbed animals for a decade and the people that work so hard to heal them. Um, There are some of the same themes come up in both books, which is about loneliness and our efforts to feel less lonely and medicine and what real medicine actually is and that sometimes it's what we think of as medicine and sometimes it isn't. So I've I've noticed a a pattern here that uh, with the D animals, donkeys, dogs, and please tell me you've done work with ducks. Or, no or, ducks, or but dingoes. I did. Dingoes, I did maybe? learn about dolphins. I've learned a lot about dolphins. So uh, this is it. You know, I, I've done. I've taught history for a long time, and if there's one thing I've learned over my decades is that you know everybody has a story, and everybody's story deserves to be told. Was there a, a desire that you felt somehow about telling your story specifically, having heard so many others? Because that's what you do for a living, right? Is you listen to people's stories, and I'm sure that they are you know roller coasters. But but was there a compelling thing to say? I need to tell this. This is the story that I need to tell for whatever reason. Yeah, and I hope I'm right. You know, but I feel like what separates something from maybe a journal entry to something that should be out on a bookshelf for people to buy or um, steal or what have you is that there should be a lesson in it for people, especially when we're talking about memoir. Um, Not every life contains a lesson, I think. Maybe all of our stories are valid, but they may, some of our stories might be more or less helpful to others. And I really did feel like I struggled for a long time chasing things that I was told would bring my life value and meaning, and that's not where they were. And I kind of wanted to put a sign on the road saying, beware, (laughs) you know, Uh, if you too are on this road, you might consider pulling over and spending a few minutes with me and thinking about where you're headed um, so that you too can can avoid some suffering. Yeah, I think that's a, so I, yeah, I, that's a, a very thoughtful idea of telling your story, right? That, that they can learn. I mean, I agree with you that, that not everyone's story is, is for everybody, but you know, I, I think that it's important to have these 
main life lessons that there are other people out there. I think that one thing I, I remember once that um, in, in my in my faith tradition, my wife had said something in a meeting and and uh, that was somewhat controversial. And after the meeting, someone came to her and said, I, I wish you would have said that earlier because they were moving like that was the last time they were going to be in that congregation. And it's like you, you never know when your voice is going to hit that person or they're going to be in the time of life to hear that that's going to resonate with them specifically. But I do know that uh, the way to write a page turner is to start with this sentence. It was a dark and stormy night. So let's let's go to uh, speaking of story. One of one of I think the greatest songwriters of all time is Carol King, and and one of the songs that I really resonated about as I was thinking about you and uh, and story and your your very similar uh, hair look to Carol King's uh, is the song Tapestry. So let's play. Let's listen to Tapestry by Carol King. Thank you. 
That was Tapestry by Carol King. You're listening to the Apex Radio Hour here on KSUU, Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. Thank you, Evan. So we were leaving off last, when we left, we talked, we're talking about memoirs. And Danielle, you're currently working on yours, is that correct? I'm, I'm currently working on a set of essays that, um, in a similar kind of uh, fashion, what, what Laurel was talking about, my father died when I was a freshman in college. And so I'm at this later point in my life, I'm piecing together some things I know about him professionally and what and personally, and kind of bringing put writing various essays about his life. And so, that's been a process that will also involve some research um, for me to go back and look at some of his professional work in the '70s during the Vietnam War. And so that's that's um, yeah, it's an, and it's a switch from poetry, and so it's been a little bit of it going into new territory in that direction. So, uh, having not written my memoirs or, or working on them, the I would imagine that there are some things as you both are working on these projects to say, I'm not confident I want to move this rock, right? Um, how how do, you, do you just say, I got to eat the frog, I got to move the rock or or what? I guess in your story first, Laurel, what was the, was there a rock you were really afraid to move? Yes, but it was also the rock that I knew was at the heart of the book. So um, I, my last interaction with my dad was a fight where I hung up on him and he died. And I lived with a lot of guilt over that last interaction. And um, he pursued right to die. And he knew he was going to take his little terminal prescription, but I didn't. And I, for years, I didn't want to know if I had messed up. Basically, I didn't ask my mom um, if he had been waiting for me to say goodbye. I was also late to get home. I was with some teenage friends and we were, you know, we weren't getting into trouble, but I I just, we, I wasn't in a rush to come home. And by the time I came home, he was unconscious. And so for years, I lived with the guilt of like, oh my God, he'd wanted to say goodbye to me. And not only did I come home late and not say goodbye, but I was mad at him and I hung up on him. And I wonder if he died angry at me. Um, I wonder if he died disappointed in me. And it took me until I was 40 years old, late, late 30s, I can't remember the exact age, um, to ask my mom what really happened on the day he died. And I put that off. I mean, it, it, it's like one of the last things I wrote in the book. But I knew that in writing the book, I would have to answer the question. But I had to wait until I was going to be okay either way. I had to wait until I knew that it wasn't my fault. I was a young person. I didn't know what was happening. I had to learn how to have empathy for myself before I could ask her for the truth. Um, so I did move the rock. Readers can find out what happened. Yeah. So your mom sounds like an incredibly strong and amazing woman. And how did she grapple with this situation where, you know, you were, you were younger and having the same things after your father passed? Did she reach out to you or did it was just kind of like, we just don't talk about that? You know, we talked about my dad a lot. We talked about death a lot. We There wasn't like a taboo subject in my house. Um, but because my personal coping mechanism was work and I put any negative feeling I had into school and, you know, I, I if anyone has seen the Wes Anderson movie Rushmore, like I was that kid in Rushmore. Like if there was a society, I had to be president of it. If there was a team, I had to be captain of it. I was totally obnoxious. <laughs> and... Um, I think she saw that, as did everyone else around me, and think, oh, my gosh, Laurel's thriving. You know, meanwhile, that was my coping mechanism, so I wouldn't have to feel anything. Um, so I truly, I, I don't think she was worried about me. I, and she told me that much. You know, she thought I was doing okay. She knew I was sad. She knew I missed him. But she had no idea that I carried this guilt around with me I, because I hid it really well. I never mentioned it to anyone. Because all all signs of, of teenage success you were exhibiting, right? Academic 
academic proficiency, you know, hanging out with donkeys, you know, all those kinds of things were uh, were happening, right? So she didn't have a reason to look, you think? No, she didn't. And and I and she would have. She was a parent who cared, but I really didn't I hid it. Yeah, like it was my job. It was my job, I felt. It was self-assigned job, but that's what I did. I mean, it just seems like that that, that just in my mind of the, the perfect story is your mom coming and saying, "Let's go for a flight." Because she was like, and you're in the plane, and it's like, let's talk about this. That never happened. Are those conversations well, didn't happen in the air? I didn't have that kind of family. Like, I definitely didn't go to therapy until I was, like, long out of the house, you know? Like, they weren't scared of talking about hard subjects, but also they were scared of therapy. Um, so, you know, it was a kind of, like, everything's fine here. Why would you need therapy? You just got a 4.0, you know? Yeah. It was that. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to her credit, she finally went herself after I begged her for probably 20 years um, while she was dying. And finally, right before she died, she was like, you know, Laurel, this, this therapy stuff, it's not that bad. I, I kind of enjoy it. I was like, if, if only you'd started sooner. <laughs> well, yeah, that's true. So, Daniel, what about you? What are the, how do you deal with those things? Um, I, well, I think what's interesting about moving the rock is that um, you, as a writer, you, you've moved that rock emotionally before you have written it about that I think and and so that so that and writing helps to move that rock but if professionally you're going to work you're going to get your work out there you've already done it personally in various ways and I and and so for me that there is a part of this this there's one essay that was definitely the rock and I and and I had to take lots of breaks as I was I mean I'd already worked with it in other ways but I as I was writing about it, I had to take a lot of stepping back and kind of reflecting and 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 really allowing the pieces of this essay to come together since I was writing not my story but another my dad's story or trying to anyway and so it was just a process it's just it, I think that's the other thing about writing is how much time it takes so much time and um, we sometimes think oh it just showed up like the sentence just was there and it just takes a lot of reflection a, a lot of daydreaming a lot of reflecting a lot of time with the donkeys sorry to keep bringing that back up but they are great mo- you know great metaphor a motif for that you know just the time it takes that you're for your brain to consider all these things and allow you to give you the strength that's now it's time for me to move that rock you know i i applaud the the courage of you both to to explore those things i as a historian i spend a lot of time telling the stories about other people right and and writing about the lives of other people i'm not sure that i i would want to to begin doing those things so i'm i I don't know if there was some catharsis there or i guess healing right i mean that's kind of is there healing i mean you talk about i mean the book is called what looks like bravery an epic journey through loss to love but was there healing involved as well for you yeah i'd say it's not done you know um the journey isn't over and it's not like um i think that subtitle can be a little bit misleading it's not like there was loss and now there's love right there's always both if you're lucky um and so I, I'm definitely, I'm definitely still on the journey. And I do think writing about the hard and the beautiful things that happen in your life can be healing. Um, not necessarily for the reasons you might think. For me, what I was getting a lot of flight anxiety while I was doing this book. And um, as soon as I finished it, I stopped getting nervous on planes. And I realized so much of getting the story out 
for me was that so my nephews will know where they come from and that they will be able to hear the sound of their grandparents and you know they're growing up on the ranch now and I want them to know like who planted those trees and it was kind of freeing to me to know that now they have a story that they can consult if anything happens to me or their dad um, that I've made these people real who loved them and who could imagine their existence so clearly um, and I want them to know who they who they come from and so that that is healing to me um you know we had a house fire we lost everything i have no family photos but i have this book um that that will teach them uh who who these people are who love them so much they didn't get to meet i think that's a really beautiful statement and i think that's why when i talk about people's story matter is that that while there may not be a lesson for everyone you know for a, a universal lesson from everyone's story but there is someone in your life who needs to hear about where they came from, who needs to hear about where they are and how they're connected. I, I used to do, as a public historian, cemetery tours and tell the stories and things in and, and the Cedar City Cemetery. And the frustrating thing always is, is that, you know, this is when I was born, this is when I died. And, and that's, you know, that's great if I was a genealogist, but as a historian, I want that dash in the middle, right? That's what, you know, knowing the story of your parents is what makes them human to your nephews. It's not not a, a birth date and a death date. It's that story that you've done and you've provided something for them that, that at some point in their life they will fall on their knees and thank you for, for connecting them to who they came for, where they came from, and who they are. You've defined who they are as, as people, and I think that's there's no greater, nobler thing to do that to somebody, for somebody. So, well done. Well, I think that's what you do as a historian. You're just doing it for the culture. You know, we need it individually, but we also need a record of where we come from, and that's history. Well, I'm doing it for the money, right? Because right, in college, um, those historians so, make so much. Yes, they yes. Really compared do. to the English department people, <laughs> compared to poets, <laughs> compared to Olin. poets. Don't even get me started on animal behaviorists. Oh so, man, is uh, that the world I want to live yeah. in, though? Um, so, Laurel, tell me about the hard and beautiful stuff you have seen recently. Oh, uh, um, give me a context. You said that today. You said that in your storytelling, people would tell you about the hard and beautiful oh. stuff they've seen recently. So I'm asking you to tell me about tell the hard me. and beautiful stuff you've seen recently. Oh, man. Well, I just, I was teaching this past week in Northern California, but just before that, um, I'll start with the beautiful. I was, my husband runs a salmon cannery off the road system in Alaska, and um my brother and I went up to visit him, and we did a little float trip. So we we took our uh, we borrowed an inflatable raft, and we got dropped off by float plane on this amazing river called the Carlick River. And we were to be picked up on the other end of the river by float plane when we were done. And uh, it was incredible. It, we were in Kodiak Wildlife Refuge, and I think we saw twenty one bears from about twelve feet away as we floated. Um, and then it started to rain, and then it just rained and rained and rained. And I don't care how good your your rain jacket is or how many layers of Gore-Tex you have on your body, enough Alaskan rain, you are just going to get soaked through, and then the wind is going to come up, and you are going to get so cold, you think that you are a death's doorway. Um, and so that's how I spent the week before last, <laughs> was just being so insanely cold. Um and just watching these magnificent creatures go about their day as just not caring one bit in the world while we floated silently past. Um, and it was such a nice reminder of how much I love being indoors. Um, <laughs> 
walls. I was just thinking about it at our Italian dinner last night, you know, like how nice it was to be warm and sitting in a, on a chair, you know, and I think that is just such a marvelous thing to do to yourself every once in a while so that you actually appreciate all that we take for granted um, all day long. So I guess that's a that was a hard and a beautiful thing that happened. It was a chosen hardship, um, so maybe not like a real hardship, uh, but also a beautiful thing and, and just such a nice reminder of the majesty um, of non-human creatures and, and also our ability to, to survive. I'm doing a TED Talk next week and also while I was watching bears and being freezing to my very core, I was just silently repeating my TED Talk in my head. Um, you know, we contain multitudes uh, and uh, that yeah, that, that's my trip report of humanity from the last week. Beautiful. And you came to the desert, right? You yes. went from the, the Alaskan tundra to the desert. So uh, let's move into our final, our, uh, the, the final break song. Now, this one, I was so happy when I read this because it has to do with donkeys, too, is that you had played the, whoever you, you did this experiment. You played music and the only music that these donkeys would resonate to was by Nina Simone. And I will tell you, I love Nina Simone. I mean, I, I absolutely love her music and what she stands for. And I, I was thinking I got to choose a Nina Simone song, but my favorite Nina Simone song, I cannot play on the radio because, you know, there's that little thing there that you see with the sign about language. So this is one that everyone hopefully should know. And if you don't know it, you absolutely should. This is Feeling Good by Nina Simone. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. Feeling good Fish in the sea You know how I feel River running free You know how I feel Blossom on the tree You know how I feel It's a new dawn It's a new day And fly out in the sun You know what I mean, don't you know Butterflies all having fun You know what I mean Sleep in peace when day is done That's what I mean And this old world is a new world And a bold world for me And all the time, you know how I feel. Oh, freedom is mine, and I know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new
That was Feeling Good by Nina Simone. Uh, you're listening to KSU Thunder 91.1. I'll turn it back to you, Ryan. All right. Thanks, Evan. It's the last, uh, the, the most exciting part in my mind of our show, which is why we talk about, about joy as the last segment. So, Laurel Breitman, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? My, uh, a, a dear friend of mine, so this is bias, but I would say this if, even if I didn't love her. A dear friend of mine has a book out called How to Say Goodbye. She's a an artist. Her name is Wendy McNaughton. She's an amazing Instagram. It's at Wendy Mac. And she also teaches adults how to draw. It's called the Grown Ups Table. Um, I recommend everything she does, but especially her new book is absolutely beautiful. It's bringing me joy, as does drawing with her. How to Say Goodbye by Wendy McNaughton. And if you're on Instagram, she's at Wendy Mac, M A C. Very cool. Daniel Dabrowski, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Well, I, this is um, maybe in part because of what I'm working on, but I'm, I'm just going back to a lot of 70s music. But but I, I for some reason, Dionne Warwick, uh, Pandora Station, that just has been been, been helpful for, for kind of doing some of this. And then another, it's, um, just Hans, Hans Zimmer. Um, composer for many uh, for many uh, movies. That's another another selection of music that is very conducive for writing and uh, peaceful feelings. I guess their sense of joy. Great, so. great. So one question: Do you know the way to San Jose? <laughs> yes, of course. Okay. All right. Evan's like, what are you talking about, dude? So uh, Evan Miller, what are you currently watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? Yeah, recently with uh, the cooler weather here in Cedar City and the October, now we're in October, I recently watched The Nightmare Before Christmas, which is a fun movie that I grew up watching and just kind of brought back a lot of memories and stuff. So watched that with the roommates and it was, it was a lot of fun. So uh, Ryan, what are you watching, reading, listening to, or playing that is bringing you joy? I will tell you this first, The Nightmare Before Christmas is the movie that I have seen in the theater more than any other. Like not just seen like on streaming or like actually in the movie theater five times. Wow. So five times over the years, of course. Of course. But, uh, love that movie. Uh, I will tell you this. So my son was young when this came out. And now that he is, has become of age, we are, we're watching this. I'm watching the rewatching for me, the Netflix series Daredevil, which was, you know, the, the hero Daredevil blinded and has this kind of the sensory thing. And uh, it's been fun. You know, it's been a long time since it's been on. But now that it's been moved to Disney Plus, we've been because they took it off Netflix. We've been rediscovering that. And it's fun to watch those things that I remember, you know, a few years ago. But he was too young to watch him and have those experiences talking about weird, nerdy comic book stuff with my son. So the Netflix series Daredevil is what's bringing me joy. Well, I want to thank uh, our guests today, Dr. Laurel Breitman and Dr. Daniel Nebraski, for for being here and taking the time to talk about such cool things. And as we go out on our final song, this, uh, again, is this amazingly weird idea of playing music to animals, which we didn't really get a chance to talk about. But this is um, from a group named Black Prairie. And the song is called Animals Inside. But can you just briefly talk about this for a second? Sure. So the project is called Music for Animals, and I haven't done it in a couple years. But if people go to my website, I believe I have some of those videos up. 
and I wanted to talk about animal cognition and emotional lives um, without standing on a box and, you know, lecturing to people and saying that other animals have feelings and aesthetic preferences and music tastes. So I thought instead, I know animals respond to music like we do and that they love some things and hate some other things. So I think I'm just going to show people what happens. And so I invited the Decemberists, their Americana Roots uh, group, which is called Black Prairie, to play music for a group of wolves um, who live at a wolf sanctuary in Washington state. And these wolves, uh, wolves are really attuned to sound, right? Like they have their own songs and their own language. And I thought it might be interesting to see if they, they liked these guys. Did they like them? Yeah. Yeah. People should go watch the video, see what happened. Yeah. So let's hear you all in podcast and radio land howl as you hear this song, uh, Animals Inside by Black Prairie. Thank you for listening to the Apex Radio Hour. Do you wish you were under the moon? 